The following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. Today, I am joined by David Seaman of Alpha Signe Investment Management for a conversation with Chris Bogart, the founder and CEO of Burford Capital. AIM listed Burford is the world's preeminent litigation finance provider, which has grown strongly since inception and IPO in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. Chris discusses the events that led to the formation of Burford and the original listing in London. He also talks about the culture and incentives within Burford and how the company has dealt with investor scepticism they have encountered. He also talks about how data and time both add up to important competitive advantages and how AI and machine learning are used in the litigation discovery process and why listing on the New York Stock Exchange was a preferable route to a full listing in the UK. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Chris Bogart. Hi, Chris. Can we start by going back to your early life? Were there any early indications that might suggest a career as an entrepreneur? Were you always going to be a maverick? Well, I was always going to be a lawyer, I think, was the original design. And that's what I did for some number of years. But I fairly rapidly, as a lawyer, had questions and issues with the structure of the legal industry. So I was lucky enough to move from practicing law to being Time Warner's general counsel, and that gave me a platform. In fact, it was in that role that I really became interested in the economics of the legal industry and the economics of law firms. And I did some things even at Time Warner that sort of were a precursor to ultimately what became Burford. It's interesting because lawyers, at least popularly, are perceived to be a fairly risk-averse group of people. So was it then at Time Warner when you began to realize that you had this entrepreneurial bug? Or even before that, I think as a practicing lawyer, I was probably not content with the structure of, of law firms. I probably didn't see it as a realistic place to spend my entire career. It was a time when AOL had just been acquired, I believe. Did you have an appreciation at the time? I mean, that was sort of an era-defining deal for the tech and the media industry that's become known as today? Oh, I think so. To be fair, I went to Time Warner at a very tender age, in part because of the whole upheaval that was happening because of the internet and technology. Businesses like Time Warner, old line media businesses, were seeing their landscape change dramatically with the arrival of AOL and Yahoo and firms like that. And so clearly part of the appeal from Time Warner from hiring me in the first place was because I was young and technologically focused. So I had a great interest in the internet and in broadband technology. And as you say, I was there when we did the AOL merger, which as a commercial transaction was probably undesirable. You know, Time Warner, I think, pretty clearly overpaid for AOL. But if you set the commerciality aside, it was clearly the right strategic thing for Time Warner to do, to be taking old line media brands and combining them with a newer internet presence. So in that sort of ferment of the things that were going on at that time. When was the realisation? When Did you have a light bulb moment when you felt that this new area of litigation finance could be a serious, long-term, sustainable business opportunity for you? So that wasn't the light bulb moment. In fact, I had sort of progressed from law into technology at that point. 
I wasn't really thinking about legal finance. Legal finance for me started effectively as a hobby after I had made the leap out of law altogether and into the technology world. And it was a hobby in the sense that of literally a university friend of mine who had become a partner at one of the big law firms, Latham & Watkins, was struggling with the same issue that I talked to you about a moment ago, which is the risk aversion of law firms and the economic structure within them makes it difficult to do anything other than bill clients for cash by the hour. And so ultimately, really as a sideline, you know, a few of us put together a small pool of money and started financing his cases. And that wasn't in my mind at the moment something that I was going to turn around and devote my life to doing. That was a side business that was interesting to me in addition to my day job, which was investing in, in media and technology businesses. The person you had that relationship with in the law firm, was that John or did you join forces with John later on? I joined forces with John later on. Okay. John was, interestingly, at the same time experimenting in the same area, but our paths hadn't yet crossed there. Okay. So this was just a small fund that we used to back this one lawyer. And what ultimately happened, which gave rise to Burford's formation, was the financial crisis. So the financial crisis did two things at the same time. One, it dramatically increased the desire of law firms to have access to capital. And so I was inundated with law firms seeking capital because people knew that I was doing this for Latham. And at the same time, you know, I'm a reasonably conservative investor and I thought that valuations, you know, I thought the most technology things I looked at had negative equity value at that point. So my day job wasn't very fun. So I did meet up with John at that point. And both of us pivoted and we decided to try to raise institutional level capital for Burford and really turn it into an institutional platform. We've read that uh, you met Jonathan at a RAND conference. Is that correct? It's true. And I'm still involved with RAND. I sit on the board of their Institute for Civil Justice. RAND was very much ahead of its time and put together a symposium of academics mostly to talk about the concept of introducing external capital into the legal industry. And I was invited to attend and John was there and we sat next to each other at a dinner and that was the spark that led to the formation of Burford only a few months later. So the context at the time would have been in the heat of the financial crisis. So this conference was occurring, Obama just uh, was about to take the presidency. That's right. So that conference would have been in the spring of 2009 and we IPO'd Burford in October 2009. It's easy to fit a, a straight line narrative for outsiders with hindsight, but the way you described it just there sounds like a straight line. So you, you met Jonathan, you'd already been fermenting the ideas behind Burford, or that ultimately became Burford. And then just a few months later, you'd already started working together. So, I mean, it really was a light bulb moment there, or what was the path from meeting to, to starting? I think that's right. So it was pretty clear before I met John and before going to the RAND conference that this was an area that I wanted to explore. And again, that was due to just seeing this demand for capital from law firms driven by the financial crisis. Effectively, what happened is all of these corporate clients showed up to their law firms and they said, there's no way that we're going to pay you the way that you'd like to be paid and the way that we were prepared to pay you last year. We just can't. We just won't. The world might come to an end financially. And so there was a lot of pressure on law firms at the time and law firms were scrambling around looking for solutions. And, you know, I was visible to them in the market because I had been playing with this stuff. And so I was basically casting around for how am I going to take what was just really just a hobby sideline? How am I going to take that and 
turn it into a professional platform. And that obviously needs capital and it needs people. And so John was an integral part of the people side of that component, as were the original directors of Burford. I don't think that Burford would have got off the ground, for example, without Sir Peter Middleton, who was the original chairman and had a great deal of respect in the English financial community. So you needed to assemble the right group of people to actually be able to operate the business, and you needed to assemble the capital to be able to deploy in in answer to law firm demand. What drew you to London at that point? Well, that's an interesting and, and sort of a not very straight line part of the narrative, if you will. So my original concept was to raise a larger fund in the United States, just you know, to take what I had been doing and expand it considerably. That was clearly in the context of the financial crisis going to be difficult. Number one, it was going to take a long time which didn't suit the immediate need for capital that law firms were demonstrating. But it was also going to be difficult. It was a new asset class for people. It didn't fit neatly into an existing financial narrative for capital allocators. We didn't have any particular track record. And so it was going to be a slog as a fundraising. So some bankers that we knew indicated that they thought that there might be some interest in London in part because London, not too long before that, had amended their own rules about legal services and law firm ownership. From that point forward, you were able to take an equity interest in an English law firm. And I think there was some expectation among some parts of the financial markets that would lead to a little bit of a boom in law firm economic activity, which it really didn't. You know, even today, many years since, there are only a handful of listed law firms I think that will slowly grow, but it hasn't had the sort of big bang kind of context that that people were thinking about. That being said, it was certainly the case that English investors were more conditioned to think about the legal industry as a capital vehicle. So like many people, we went where the capital was. There seemed to be demand for this kind of offering in the market. It's helpful that litigation finance is an entirely uncorrelated asset. So in a world where many things had acted in a correlated way, it was attractive to investors to have something that had truly uncorrelated cash flows. And so we decided that we'd take a fund structure to market and see if we could rapidly raise capital for what was an immediate capital demand. And we were graced with with success over here from the support of a number of initial investors. So Burford wasn't actually the first litigation finance provider that was listed. You became the largest player and in many regards, you're seen as the face of the industry. What are the key ingredients, do you think, for that success? Well, I think it was the fact that we regard what we do as specialty finance that is focused on law as opposed to being a legal business. And I think that's key to both raising capital in scale, and I think it's key to building a proper institutional quality investing business. Burford didn't invent the category, though. We were early in it, but we didn't invent it. But what we did do, I think, is institutionalize it. We took it from sort of hobby-style investing, the kind that I was doing in my little hobby fund, to professional investing, to the kind of infrastructure and the kind of systems and processes and governance that investors of scale expect from the things in which they're willing to deploy lots of capital. How would you describe the culture at Burford? 
Culture is really important to us. I'm a big believer that culture is important in businesses generally and that you can trace many business failures to cultural failures within businesses. So I think strong culture is important. And I think articulating a culture and then having people live that culture is important as well because then you start attracting like people. So our culture is very intellectual, very intelligent. You know, we're trying to get this right. It's not a hedge fund trading floor style culture at all. It's a culture where we insist on thoughtful analysis and we force people to write a lot. So we don't make investment decisions by gathering a bunch of people in a room and talking through stuff and putting bullet points up on a whiteboard. We make investment decisions by having people go and write long sentence and paragraph memoranda that really analyze the underlying investment decision. And that, by the way, is true about how we approach a lot of other things. You know, I share this with Jeff Bezos. I believe in having people write down and flesh out their concepts as opposed to just throwing a couple of bullet points on a PowerPoint deck. And so that's an important part of the culture. And what that leads to is a culture where analysis is respected and a culture where, you know, smart people enjoy coming to work at Burford, enjoy surrounding themselves with other smart colleagues and enjoy that kind of rigorous analysis. How did that sort of intelligent, rigorous culture of analysis then manifest in a period of time you were both, if not the first, as we discussed, institutionalizing, the first institutionalized, and then facing external skepticism about that and, and other things. How did the culture then manifest in the face of this external skepticism, which at times you experienced? I think that, you know, the skepticism, frankly, to the extent it exists, it's on the capital side of the equation. So said another way, there's not a lot of skepticism about what Burford does in the legal industry. Lawyers routinely think of us as very high quality expert. You know, those are the kinds of attributes that get applied to us from the client population. So I think the question around Burford is really only with respect to uh, public market investors. And that's a natural degree of skepticism because the nature of litigation makes it impossible for investors to see what's inside the business. And so if you're somebody as an investor who really wants to get in and diligence the underlying assets, you can't really do that here. But internally, as a, an evidence-based culture, you know, there is that transparency internally, I guess. So the conviction that comes, the cohesion that comes from the consistent culture then has, in your mind, has it stronger or weaker over time? What direction is it moving in? Well, I think it always was strong, but I think now what we've got in addition to the theory, is we've got the reality. So if you go back and look at how we approached a matter 10 years ago as opposed to how we approach it today, in methodology, there's not a significant change there. You know, we probably are better investors than we were 10 years ago, but the process, the methodological approach, the fundamental areas of diligence have not changed dramatically. However, We've now brought back more than a billion dollars of cash. We've generated consistent returns over a large number of investments. We've demonstrated that the mousetrap works, the model works. And so I think that is an affirming thing for people as we go down the road. I think that internally it helps people to know that the decisions that they made seven years ago and six years ago and five years ago that are now coming home to roost were correct. 
And what about incentives then? So, I mean, reading around the business is clear you've thought hard, both internally and externally, about aligning incentives with clients, with shareholders and so on. Is it too cynical to think that a high-performing team of legal and finance specialists that you know, incentives have a disproportionate, if you like, uh, relevance to keeping that team cohesion? You know, the principal incentive is obviously to make money from the underlying investments. And that incentive expresses itself in various ways depending on whose shoes you're standing in. Like we make money when the case wins. So we're aligned with the client in that regard. The client wants the case to win, obviously. We're aligned with the lawyers. The lawyers want the case to win. You know, lawyers obviously are economic creatures and are doing what they're doing to be paid. But they're also wanting to win. You know, I don't know a single litigation lawyer who's indifferent about winning or losing as long as his fee is paid. So the sheer fact that there's going to be a winner and a loser aligns everybody's incentives, including our own economic incentives. And so for our team, we too want the cases to win because obviously that's how we make our money. But at the individual analyst or decision-maker maker level in proposing a specific investment, do you incentivize them to win or not to lose? First of all, we don't invest on an individual basis. And that's maybe going back to your earlier question about culture. That's a very important part of our culture and our ethos. We believe that investing is a team undertaking. So yes, there's going to be somebody who is principally writing that memo that I described. But at the same time, we're not going to make an investment until a lot of people with a lot of experience have reviewed this matter and said yes to it. And so at the end of the day, I'm just as re responsible for every investment that we make. John is just as responsible for every investment that we make as the most junior analyst person on our team. And so that's how we approach winning and losing. We don't pay people for the case that they particularly did, nor do we penalize them for the case that lost. We take it in the round and we compensate the team based on our overall performance. The portfolio effect. Exactly. How big can Burford be? Well, the market opportunity theoretically is enormous. And let's unpack that a little bit. When you start by looking at numbers, you start with very, very large numbers here. The legal industry is enormous. So in terms of legal fees out there in the world, people spend close to a trillion dollars a year on legal fees, $850 billion a year or something is the, is the current estimate. And that's just legal fees. <laughs> then on top of that, you have an unmeasured but almost certainly trillions of dollars in judgments and litigation settlements every year. So I'm not suggesting that all of that is addressable. However, we're today operating in a zone where Burford, together with all of its peer players in the legal finance area, is financing literally a tiny percentage of that total market. And the question then becomes, well, what's the steady state you know, if I were to look forward in a crystal ball 20 years from now, what portion of the legal market is just going to be routinely using financing? And I often say to people, it's a little bit like thinking about leasing. Before somebody came up with the idea of leasing capital goods, the only way you could buy capital goods was with cash. You either had the cash or you borrowed it from the bank. And then some clever person invented leasing. Leasing was popular with a wide 
but not exclusive swath of potential clients. And then years and years passed where leasing grew every year until you finally got to a point where an analyst could say, yeah, I think now, whatever the number is, 40% of capital goods are going to be leased and 60% are going to be bought by cash. But I don't think while that evolution was occurring, I don't think anyone could forecast the 40% number. Our sort of non-legal specialist understanding is actually the proportion of that fee base, which is potentially addressable by litigation finance, is it's not the majority of that market as a starting point. And then your comment about the ultimate penetration is then within that minority part of the fee. So it's not ever likely to be 40% of the big figure. Well, I guess the question, though, is which big figure you're looking at. So I agree with that analysis as to legal fees, as to the money that people are paying law firms. I don't agree with it when applied to the larger pool, which is the settlements, judgments, and awards. That's a pool that theoretically is 100% financeable. Realistically, I don't think you'll ever get to close to 100%, but that's a very large pool. It's larger than the legal fee pool. I'm particularly interested in the data science angle. So you recently disclosed for the first time some of your internal modeling. So it's clear that under the hood within Burford, you've been building some capability in in this regard. But also as the biggest firm within the field, you've obviously looked back at a lot of history as well. You've referenced to sort of multi-decade studies. I mean, how do you or can you use that data that you have in-house to build a competitive advantage for the business? I think there's a significant benefit that comes from it, and it comes from a combination of scale and time. And one of the things that is underlying that competitive benefit is the fact that most litigation resolves by confidential settlement and not by going to trial or going to court. You know, in Burford's case, about 60% of our matters resolved by settlement. That actually is a lower number than you find in many court systems. So in the New York courts, for example, more than 90% of matters settle. And the reason that's important to your data science question is you, generally speaking, can't discover what happened in the settlement. And so you have a world, just sticking with New York for a world for a moment, you've got a world as you try to analyze and predict litigation outcomes, you have a world where more than 90% of those outcomes are not in your data set. And so the only thing that you're seeing publicly are the shoulder cases, the outliers on both ends, the wins and the losses at trial. And that makes predicting outcomes when most matters don't follow that path very difficult. What we now have across a very significant population of some of the largest and most complex litigation in the world is access to the other 90%. And that clearly informs what we do as investors because one of the fundamental issues in this business, obviously we want to try to get the case right. We don't want to finance cases that are going to go on and lose if they go all the way to court. But beyond that, we need to make sure that the economics of the investment are going to work. It doesn't do us any good to invest $15 million into a case that is only going to produce $10 million in settlement. That's much of a loss for us as if the case went to trial and and actually lost. And so a critical part of the investment analysis here is trying to establish what the realistic value of the case is. 
And that's something that we now are probably better suited to do than almost anyone else because of the combination of scale and passage of time. And that's an advantage that will keep on growing essentially exponentially for us because every year we look at more things and we add that to what is already a significant population of data. So access to the data, I think Mm -hmm. we can take that as read. That it's useful also mm-hmm. seems very logical, but it'd be really interesting to hear some of what you do with it that turns it from proprietary data into valuable insight. How do you work with the data to make sure that this is a capability which grows, as you said, exponentially? This comes back to your data science point, because what we do is we have a complete portion of our business that is focused on data and analytics as opposed to law. While we have lots of lawyers at Burford, something around 70 of them, we also have a whole bunch of people who are not lawyers, but instead are quantitatively focused, analytically focused. And we basically conjoin those two groups together and integrate them in the investment analysis. And that's fundamentally what we're doing with the data that we use. So over time, the memos that you referred to, for example, become machine-assisted if you like, rather than person-led? If you like, although I don't want to push that too far. You know, data science is very much in vogue today, AI and, and machine learning. Where that fits into our world at the moment is more in discovering the facts than it is in making the investment decision. Because, of course, what happens when you engage in litigation and commercial litigation is you have an enormous pool of underlying information. You're both sitting with laptops in front of you. Those laptops are keeping track of every keystroke that you make, and we save that for years and years. So if you or your employers become involved in a big piece of litigation, we have vast amounts of data about you, that it's not only not efficient, it's not even really possible for us to go and read as humans all of the data that we're collecting from you. And so that's where machine learning, that's where artificial intelligence is playing a significant role today in litigation. And that's just doing volume. You could potentially take on more AUM profitably in the third party business, for example, or deploy as much balance sheet capital as you can get your hands on without necessarily doubling, tripling the team in proportion to that increase in in scope? I think that's right, although I'm going to twist it a little bit on you because I think that the benefit that we see is the ability, frankly, to use our investment conviction to make larger investments. And that's where the leverage comes from this for us today. You know, we've gone from an average investment size of something around $6 million to over $20 million over our history. And we've done that because we're more confident in being able to effectively have a loan-to-value ratio that we like. We're more comfortable in being able to compute the value portion of that equation. And that's where the human leverage has come in. I would need more people than we have today if we still were at a $6 million average investment size. So there's an indirect benefit. And the link there is being more confident in mitigating the downside of of what you're doing. So despite being a US-based business, you originally listed on AIM, and you've recently gone through the not inconsequential task of listing on 
the New York Stock Exchange. What do you see as the main benefits of this move? I mean, I'm asking this in the context, among other things, that you know, in the UK we're currently going through a period of beating ourselves up over the issue of whether the UK is a good place for businesses like yours to list. Well, the benefits of the New York Stock Exchange, I think, were several fold for us. It's obviously the largest and most liquid pool of capital around. And so it opens the door to a number of investors who wouldn't have been willing or prepared to buy us as an English listed company. And I think that's particularly useful for this business because Americans live in a world of litigation more than people in England or people in Europe do. There's more of just a human consumer level understanding of litigation and the economics of litigation. Investors as consumers understand contingency fees and understand risk-based litigation, for example, because they see it on billboards along the highway. It's a feature of, of American life in a way that it is not here. And that means that when you go and pitch the concept to an American investor, they more rapidly have an intuitive grasp of what you're talking about, and they can respond to it better. Back to your earlier point about investor skepticism, you know, I think that the most compelling way to combat investor skepticism is to go voluntarily and subject yourself to review by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and, you know, open your books and have them go through your accounting and ultimately have the New York Stock Exchange agree to list you. And I think that really does put to bed the questions of investor skepticism. You know, if we had simply stayed in London and moved to the main market, you would not have seen that same level of required disclosure. The disclosures that we were making historically as an aimlisted company would have been, other than dressing up what you talk about as a main market company with lots of committee reports in your annual report and so on, the fundamental disclosures that we would have had to provide would not have changed. How do you see the longer term impact of COVID and the lockdown in terms of its impact on the market and Burford? I don't think that COVID has a long-term impact on our operations or approach. You know, the short-term impact, as you say, there have been delays in court processes. And we've also seen softness in new business at various times during the pandemic because some of our new business comes from the fact that lawyers gather in person a lot and they've been precluded from doing that by the pandemic. And there hasn't really been a good replacement for those in-person gatherings at the moment. But I don't think that you're going to see dramatic changes. I do think you'll see some efficiencies in the litigation process. For example, courts really did not do anything other than in person before the pandemic. So as a trial lawyer, for example, I would sometimes fly across the country. I'd fly from New York to Los Angeles for a 15-minute court appearance. And now that courts have become accustomed to doing lots of their work by video or by telephone, I think those kinds of inefficiencies may be addressed permanently. So there's probably some modest benefit. But at the end of the day, if I have a case that has a lot of money riding on it, I want to be able to cross-examine you in person 
without a mask on in a courtroom in front of other people. I don't want to cross-examine you by video where somebody that I can't see might be signaling to you. I want to control the situation and the dynamic. And that's an important element of the legal process. And I don't think you're going to see that go away. But do you think the aftermath of what we've been through with 72 ships lined up outside Los Angeles or you know, the supply chain disruption and bottlenecks, is that going to spawn a wave of litigation that would be attractive? You use the term wave, and I think wave is the right term as opposed to spike. So basically, if you think visually, you can imagine sort of a base level bar of litigation activity that's always present in the world. People always have disputes, they take them to litigation and, and they get them resolved. And that base bar probably grows by something like, you know, population growth and GDP growth, something like that. And then what you do is you effectively layer on top of that base bar some event-driven matters. You saw it from the financial crisis, for example. You saw it from the dot-com boom. You see it from some single events, like the terrible fire with the building here in London, you know, where there's disputes about the asbestos shields. So all of those things produce litigation elements that sit on top of that and run for years and years and years. We're still not finished financial crisis litigation yet. That's still going on. So there's going to be COVID litigation for years and years and years as well. Because, as you say, the ships are lined up outside the port. You know, what happens if you're a banana grower and you've shipped a shipload of bananas and they spoil before they can be unloaded? Somebody has to bear that loss. And often the question of who is resolved in the litigation process. We've discussed today and you've discussed elsewhere repeatedly how litigation finance done well is about managing risk, managing probabilities, constructing the proper portfolio, having the proper process. But you as an individual, I mean, do you play any games outside of the day job which involve probability and risk? For example, are you a poker player? Do you spend time practicing the arts outside of the office? I'm not a poker player, but I do play games that involve risk and probability, ranging from bridge to various board games. Settlers of Catan, for example. So yes, I do recreationally, but I'm not addicted to them. I'm not a poker or bridge player that, you know, every weekend you find me at the at the card table. Have you read sort of more theoretically on, you know, the nature of risk and probability? What, what do you read? I have, and I find it an interesting area. I also find the linkage between some of that work and game theory to be interesting because... When you think about what we do professionally, it's certainly true that there's risk and probability, but there's also a meaningful human non-probabilistic element to it. So if you compare poker and litigation, there are a finite number of poker outcome possibilities. That number might be large, it might be difficult for you to compute them, but there's a finite number because the cards are ultimately going to come out in only a certain number of potential ways. In litigation, what you have to add to the mix is the human dynamic. So we're sitting here having a pleasant conversation. I don't know how you will be as a witness on the witness stand under cross-examination. So in one level, you can say, well, you know, you'll either be great or terrible or somewhere in between. 
And as a result, there's only a couple of outcomes. The case wins, the case loses. But because litigation is very rarely binary like that, what you're trying to calibrate for is that human element that will change the economic dynamic in the litigation. So the grumpy judge or unforeseen. Exactly. You know, we lost a case once that we should have won. And the reason that we lost the case is because this was a piece of corporate litigation. The principal witness for our client was delinquent on his child support. He was a deadbeat dad. And that came out during his cross-examination. And the trial judge that we had had a deeply emotional reaction to deadbeat dads and basically refused to credit any testimony from this witness. And we lost the case as a result. You know, statistically, you would not have accounted for that probability. And 99 out of 100 other times, we would have had a different judge and we would have won the case. The process around the unlikely thing that transpires or the likely mm-hmm. thing that doesn't transpire. Can you discuss a bit you know, how you handle failure, but I don't mean it in a negative connotation here, but an unexpected or unlikely outcome that crystallizes. What's your process at Burford around integrating that into your learning, into your process in the correct way? I think it is an important question. And that's where we have, I think, learned over time. Like, for example, you know, back to my cross-examination example, if your testimony is going to be important, we might, before we make an investment decision, we might subject you to a mock cross-examination to see how you do. That's the kind of thing that we'll do sometimes. Feel free. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine, I mean, your personal wealth is over-indexed towards this asset. What strategies do you adopt to balance out that risk profile? And how do you think other people who are not in the subject should regard the asset in the context of their portfolio? You really need to have tolerance for volatility and unpredictability. So I would be concerned if an individual investor were taking on a weighty position. I think it's fine for Burford to be owned as a part of an institutional investor's diversified portfolio. But I do become concerned when people start to follow individual stocks, whether it's Burford or whether it's Tesla or whether it's Bitcoin, in a way that means that their financial well-being is connected to the performance of any individual security. Is there a next act for Burford in the distant future that you can envisage? I think Burford is designed to be and will continue to be a single industry focused business. So our DNA, our expertise is all around law, the legal industry. I think that you will continue to see structural changes in the legal industry, the most significant of which is that I don't believe that the ownership structure and corporate structure of law firms will continue unchanged for the next decade or two. I think you already see the cracks happening in that foundation, in part because the structure really doesn't work for people who are prepared to build law firms. You can't today monetize the equity value that you've created in in a law firm that you've built. I think you will see changes in the legal industry. It's something that John and I spend time on, and I think you will see Burford continue to grow and expand what it does consistent with growth and changes in the legal industry. So it will have your own flavor. Yes. So I do wonder sometimes, I mean, you get a lot of feedback from the Mm -hmm. equity market, and I do wonder whether 
investors always want what they actually tell you what they want, right? If that's what they really want. So the flip side of the financial attributes of the business, you said people have to be prepared for volatility. It's inherent in, in what you do. Is going to be through some lenses a high cost of equity, right? It's going to be an apparent cheapness if you were to compare to a different kind of business in terms of the multiples that the market may give you. So the market tells you that they want the specialism, they want the uncorrelated attributes, but then they don't reward you for it in that narrow way. So I wonder if being more diversified in that way may actually be one of the paths to you know, a lower cost of equity for the business. It may well, because I agree with you. The way that the market acts is not always consistent with the way that the market talks. The diversification from us, I don't think you're going to see us add on an accounting division to Burford. Even though some of what we do, probably you could apply to accounting firms as well. I don't think you'll see us stray from the core industry focus that we have. I think you'll continue to see us expand geographically. I think you'll continue to see a wider range of product sets. But I think that realistically, our DNA is tied to the legal industry, and that's where we'll continue to operate. And, you know, we have the good fortune of the legal industry being so large that the canvas has still a lot of room to paint on. So when you look back over the last 12 years, the way Burford has grown, the way the litigation finance business has become accepted as part of doing business, what surprised you about it? in the way the business has developed? Is there anything you look back on and say, well, I didn't really quite expect it to work that way? I think that I've been pleasantly surprised by the speed and scale of adoption. You know, it's relatively unusual, especially in a fairly conservative sort of hidebound industry. It's relatively unusual in the space of only around a decade to have pretty complete transformation of view. If you went out in 2010, as we did, and said, okay, let's do some litigation funding, most lawyers would say, what's that? Mm. And I think you'd struggle to find a lawyer today who doesn't have a basic level of knowledge and understanding that this exists and that there are people out there who do it and probably the brand name. Like, you know, if you survey people, Burford is by far the most recognized brand name in the legal industry. And so there's some association there. So that's probably been my surprise that we had that level of transformation in just a decade, basically. Is there anything over that time that you would have done differently we didn't run it like a tech business where we said, gee, we've got a great product. We really believe in it. So now let's, you know, let's roll it out around the world and worry about making money later. We did almost the polar opposite of that. It seems to be OK for Silicon Valley, but not for lawyers. Right. You've and so, to be prudent. but, you know, in retrospect, you know, like let's take London, for example. We didn't have a physical presence on the ground in London until 2012. And then it was only by the acquisition of an insurance business. So we really were in the insurance business then only for a couple of years. In retrospect, in 2010, should we have put boots on the ground in London? Yes, probably. To be fair, the dynamics of a platform business are different to those that you face. I mean, there at least so far haven't been winner-take-all dynamics of play, which would make that tech approach that you described the rational one to follow. However, some of the things that we've touched on today and some of the work you're doing, some of those winner-takes-all or winner-takes-most dynamics are emerging or gradually emerging. You know, as you mentioned earlier, the data advantage gets built more fully and so on. So could there come a point where actually 
it is rational to begin to accelerate. To me, that's not really the question. The question is, can Burford continue to grow and maintain its relative position in a continually growing overall market? You know, this is not a business where the market is static and we're fighting for share. This is a market where the denominator continues to expand. And the question is what your numerator is going to be. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Good luck. And hopefully we can have another chat in due course. Well, thanks very much. It was great chatting with you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 